Welcome to Impact Church Online. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your very first time, will you give us a thumbs up or you can give us a heart? Yeah, I might not be really good at making those with my hands. You can also send us a comment or a message. We would love to get connected with you. Now, for everyone, we have an encouraging service for you. We have some worship. So we want to encourage you to enter into the presence of God wherever you might be. We also have an encouraging word from our pastor, Pastor Donna. So let's check it out.
Great. 
cities across the state and across the nation are who you say they are. Yes. We decree that churches across this nation are becoming who you say they are, Lord. They are coming alive, God. They're looking for you for solutions. And we decree, God, that this nation is turning towards you, God. We thank you, God, for an awakening. We thank you for our leaders. They're declaring who you say we are and who you say you are. We are as a nation, but you are as our God. And we thank you, God, because our reliance is upon you, not on the economy, not on politicians, but on you, Lord. 
And we thank you, God, for the shifting that we're seeing occurring right now from local to national, God, that things are moving, God, in a greater direction. We thank you. Thank you for healing this land, Lord. And, Father, we declare, just like in Psalm 91, where it says, He who dwells in the secret place. And, God, rather than saying we're a stay-at-home or stay-in-place, we're in the secret place. We've been ordered to be in the secret place. And so, God, we're going to remain in that secret place with you where no evil can befall us, Father. Where a thousand will fall our side, ten thousand are right. And, God, the promises for your people are truth. And we believe your truth, Father. I pray for pastors. I pray for churches. God, I pray that during this time churches will thrive. Father, we rebuke a spirit of discouragement on pastors. Lord, I pray that they would look to you and look to you alone. Don't look to numbers. Lord, we look to you and we pray for the churches to thrive. We pray for when the, when the churches reopen, Father God, that pastors are going to get healthier people, happier people. And God, we just declare your will to be done, your kingdom to come in the earth, Father. We thank you, Lord. And we declare we are who you say we are in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I would rather be no place I would rather be no place I would rather be than here in your love here in your love no place I would rather be no place I would rather be no place I would rather be than here That I can't contain, that I can't control. I want 
ourselves in your presence and your love and your goodness and your grace. Welcome to Impact Church. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. It's an honor to have you here with us today. We have some exciting events coming up, so check it out. Hey, guess what? You're correct. You can engage with us during prayer on Tuesdays and Saturdays. On Tuesdays, it's at 7 a.m. via the phone. And on Saturdays at 6 p.m. via Zoom. To find out how to sign in on them platforms, go to our Facebook page or give us a call. We'll see you there. Hey, what's up, millennials? Yes, I'm talking to you, young adults. We will be going live on Facebook at 6 p.m. on Thursdays. We will be talking about faith over fear. Tune in. We'll see you there. What's going on, Student Ministries? We miss you guys. We miss your face. We can't wait to see you again. However, we can still stay connected through social media. So Impact Kids, we have many messages and science projects uploaded at 7.30 p.m. on Wednesdays. And for our Impact Youth, we have invaded Instagram and Facebook. We will be going live on Fridays at 6 p.m. We will see you guys there. Hey, what's up, everyone? We've had a lot of questions about how to give. Well, that's a great question. I have two options for you. First is you can go to our website and give online, or you can give by sending in your check to the address below. We love you guys, and we can't wait to see your face again. Well, thanks for checking out our amazing announcements. If you would like to stay connected with us throughout the week, check us out on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you later. Morning again, Impact and Impact Facebook World. While we were in worship, we did get a specific prayer request, and I want to take this time right now to pray for this request. And I also want to take this time to pray for anyone that needs uh, healing in their body. We believe the Word of God around here. We believe that the Word of God says that I'm the Lord God who heals all your diseases. God desires to heal. Do all people get healed? No, there's reasons. And you can go along. We've done lots of teaching on healing. There's reasons some people don't get healed. And and there's, you know, you just need to work that out between you and God. That's between you and God. But I want to tell you, we believe in the power of prayer. And we believe that if any two agree about anything, it shall be done. That's what the Word tells us. And so I want to pray for Jonah's daughter, Sierra. She has uh, brain tumors and she's having seizures. And I, and if you're if you're sick out in Facebook land, if you're sick and you need healing in your body, I want you to place your hand on your body. And we're going to say that that is vicariously the elders of the church laying hands on you. And we're going to pray for recovery. Okay. So in the mighty name of Jesus, God, we take you at your word. And your word declares that you sent your word and you brought healing. Your word declares that you're the Lord God who heals all of our diseases. Your, the, your word declares that by the stripes on Jesus' back we were made whole. 
And I pray for Jonah's daughter, Sierra. I pray, Father God, that the spirit of faith would rise up in her and she would grab hold of that word of truth. And, Lord, that, that her healing power, that your healing power would be manifested in her life. And, Father, we just speak to this brain tumor that it, that it decrease, that it go away, Father. And, Lord, we thank you for the healing promises of your word. I also pray for every person out in that's watching today that needs healing in their bodies. We thank you, God, that you're, you've already accomplished healing for us on the cross. We thank you, Father God, and we declare life, health, and wholeness. You said you wish above all things that we prosper, be in health as our soul prospers. So we thank you, God, for the promise of your word. We thank you, God, in the mighty name of Jesus. And if you're there, say amen. I, I believe it. I believe it. Well, the message I have today is called the garden effect. And I know that's kind of a strange topic, but I was, uh, it really is all about the garden effect. And I want to tell you that I have probably, I don't recall in 15 years of being pastor and over 20 years of ministering the word that I've ever felt so compelled to deliver a message. And um, as this actually came to me a couple of weeks ago, right before Easter. And, you know, last week we talked about the power of the cross and how Jesus said it was finished. Everything was done. Everything was completed. And so... As I was just studying the book of Genesis, the Lord pointed out some things to me that I think were very, very significant for me personally. And I believe they're going to be significant for you personally if you'll allow this word to take root in your heart and believe what the word of God says. So the first question is, what really happened in the garden? What really happened in the garden? Well, the big picture is we know that through one man, sin entered into the world, and that through that sin, death began to reign. We know that's the truth. We also know that the sin nature was perpetrated through mankind throughout the ages, but yet another man came, and we talked about this last week, and he would defeat death and bring life back to us. And in Romans 5.12, it says, when Adam's sin, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, but everyone sinned. And then in verse 18, it says, Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. So throughout this message, don't ever forget this. Through the blood of Jesus, we have right standing with God, right? But we have to appropriate these things into our lives. We're we're not just rubber stamp coming out of the womb. Okay, that's a believer, that's an unbeliever. No, all of us were born spiritually dead. The lights were off when we were born, but because of Christ, that's why we need the new birth. He says you can't even see the kingdom unless you've been born again. So we need that he brought light and he brought life. And so we know that sin caused this separation from God until Christ restored it on the cross. So we're so thankful for that. And and so we, but we seem to focus only on that when we think about the garden event. And that's very important. So I'm not downplaying that at all. So don't, don't think I'm downplaying that at all. I feel like I have to explain But I want to ask you, why do people who love God with all their heart, you know they've been born again, they want to do the right thing, they've accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but they still have issues. They still lead and live lives of misery. Why are Christians locked into addictions, depression, anxiety, acts of violence? You know there's domestic violence in the church. How about immorality? Well, you might say, well, they're not really a believer. Well, that's between them and God, right? That's between them and God. And I've watched those. You know, we, we have a, we've been in a counseling uh, business for over 18 years, and we have seen and we have watched many people who declare their love for God, but yet they're wrapped in addiction, they're wrapped in depression, they're wrapped up in anxiety, 
And there's no doubt in my mind that they truly do not have a, do not have a love for God. No doubt in my mind whatsoever. I've watched those who've been wrapped up in addictions cry weeping in repentance only to fall back into that addictive cycle again. And what do we do? Many times as a church, we want to just cast the blame. Well, they should know better. Well, they should know better. But I'm going to tell you, a lot of churches don't teach the truth. A lot of churches aren't teaching the full gospel. They're not teaching the full power of what Jesus came for us to do. And as you know, my husband said years ago when all he knew to do was walk the altar, come to the altar, walk the aisle. And he said every Sunday he led the brigade down to the altar and repent, go back out on Sunday. And he was no more victorious than he was before he came. Because we're not taught how to live life victoriously. Yes, we've made that decision. We want it. And, you know, God has blessed us with so many opportunities to touch people's lives. And, and, and you know, I just I want you to ask yourself, how can this be? How can it be that if we love God with all of our heart, we still have these issues? We still struggle with these issues. And if you're saying, well, I don't have those issues, you're probably in denial. Really, you're probably in denial. Because many times we don't know that we have these issues, but we see the fruit of it in our lives. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 first, verse 25. And this is very important. This verse is very important to set the stage for Genesis chapter 3. But it says in 2.25, it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. But they felt no shame. And then it says in chapter 3, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now that word shrewd means to be marked by skill and deception. Marked by skill and deception. It says, one day he asked the woman, did God really say? Now, do you think it's strange that an animal would be speaking to a woman in the garden and her not think that's strange? Unless something else is really going on in the garden we're not aware of. See, there's a lot we don't know yet. There's a lot of things we don't know. And so we, we will make doctrine and we'll make theological uh, theories on things just based on what we see here. We, we've got to read things in context. So, you know, I asked my husband this morning, I said, you think all the animals communicated with Adam and Eve since this didn't seem to shock her? You know, if it had been me, I'd say, whoa, what's this snake doing talking to me? Right? But it, that's, not even in the, <laughs> that's not even in the text. But let me go back. It says, one day he asked the woman, did God really say to you, you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat. From fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, here's a case where we've got a theological opinion about, well, God didn't say you couldn't touch it. He only said you couldn't eat it. You know, let's, let's, don't, let's don't create, you know, let's, well, we, we eisegete instead of exegete. We read things out that's not really there. Let me just tell you, the Jewish, uh, Jewish laws and customs... And I know the Jewish nation wasn't there yet, was that we were, they were forbidden to touch anything that was considered forbidden. So if that's kind of a, a knowledge that is implanted into the DNA of man, right and wrong, forbidden, no, it's not, it would seem only natural then that, that we'd be an assumption. I'm not going to taste it. I'm not going to touch it because it's forbidden by God. So the fact that Eve said we can't eat or touch it is not indicative of anything other than that she fully understood that the fruit was forbidden. So let's get that straight, okay? And so it says, um, of course not. Of course we may eat from the fruit, the woman said. It's only the fruit in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat or touch. If you do, you will die. And then the very next thing the devil said was, you won't die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that you're... Now, this, this, the devil loves to speak to God, for God, by the way. You ever had somebody that loves to speak for you when you're not there? Usually, 
I've had people that will say, well, Pastor Donna wouldn't like this, or Pastor Donna wouldn't like that. Well, let me tell you, I can speak for myself. I believe God can speak for himself, right? So God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. And so we see that when God told Adam not to eat from the tree, it was more than just a piece of fruit that he was concerned about. It was more than just a single act of obedience. You know what I believe it was about? I believe it was about a heart of worship. If we go and we look at that word eat in the Hebrew in the theological word book of the Old Testament, it gives us several contexts in which that word is used. And of course, primarily it says to be consumed as by drought, fire, war, or to eat a piece of food or fruit. But secondly, it's used as a, in the context of devotion or worship. See, certain foods are eaten or avoided to show devotion to their God. In other words, certain things are allowed, certain things are not allowed. And it's an act of obedience, it's an act of worship to God. And so we know that also back in the years that followed, many of the heathen nations, they would only eat their food that was for sacrificial reasons in the presence of their God or their deity. So what do we really see happening here? What we see happening is that Eve and Adam, he was with her, transferred their worship their devotion to god to their devotion for satan and right there in the garden they ate that forbidden fruit in the presence of their new god now that think about that for a moment it's more than just slap my hand i got my hand caught in the cookie jar no it was a matter of the heart it was a matter of devotion it was a matter of our worship no longer being to the god alone but to the god of the world as jesus has said so so it's more than that so with satan it's always been about worship With Satan, it's always about worship. He wants the world to worship him. What did he say in Luke chapter 4? He told Jesus, he says, if you'll just just bow down and worship me, he said, I'm going to give you all these kingdoms because the devil offers you something that makes it and makes it look easy. See, Jesus came to give the kingdoms of the earth back to God, but he had to go through the cross. Satan said, I'm giving them to you without the cross. And I'm telling you, so many people have said to us, especially if they're hooked up in drugs and pornography addiction, you know, I thought it would make me feel better. I thought it would be good for me. I've got to get rid of my anxiety. So I'm getting my answer without having to go through the problem. And so, so the, the devil is always about worship. He wants our worship. He wants your worship. You think about the music today. You think about the arts and entertainment. There's so much occult in the, in the movies and in, in music. There's so much that subliminal messages that are put into our entertainment that, that's, that's really pointing to the enemy and, and getting our minds at ease with these occultic themes. But he uses the same techniques today that he used in the garden. If we go over to, to verse 6, it says the woman was convinced. That means she had a conversation with the enemy. We saw that. See, the first mistake we can ever make is getting into a communication with the enemy. We don't have a conversation with the devil because I'm telling you, he's going to win. We do not have a conversation. We only say, like Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. So the woman was convinced, and, and you know, that word convinced means to be firm in one's belief regarding a particular, particular cause or issue. So she became firm in her belief concerning what the devil was saying to her. And listen to this. She saw that the tree was beautiful that his fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give to her. So she took some of the fruit, she ate it, then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So what do we see here in Genesis chapter 3, 6? We also see in 1 John 2, 16. 
It says, for all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. Satan is the God of the world. And so he appealed to her that is, he said, I, she said, I, I saw his beautiful, the desires of the eyes. It looked delicious, the desire of the flesh, and it's going to make me wise, the pride of life. So he uses the same appeal to us today. And what he told her was God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. There's more. Just worship me. Just follow me. You're not, you're not enough the way you are. And see, that's what the enemy is telling, and that's what this is leading to. So many people believe they're not enough the way they are. They're not enough the way they are, and they're filled with shame, which is what we're going to be seeing in just a moment. They wanted to be more. They wanted to push past the healthy boundaries that God had given to them, had assigned to them, and their curiosity began to catch them. And what is curiosity kills the cat, right? So the curiosity began to get, what if there is more? What if we can be like God? What if we can be unlimited in power and knowledge and all of this? What if, what if, what if? But they didn't know they weren't enough until somebody suggested it to them. You know, later we're going to see as God enters into the garden, he's going to say, who told you you were naked? See, I want to ask people, who told you you're not enough? Who told you that you're not enough? Was it a father? Was it a teacher? Was it a pastor? Was it a friend, a sibling? Who told you that you were not? Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's yourself. How does the world do this today? How does the world present this to us today? Just think about your children growing up. You know, Barbie is always the perfect baby doll, right? All little girls grow up wanting to be like Barbie, the perfect hair. Anybody ever watch Hallmark movies? They're always the beautiful people, right? They have the perfect makeup, the perfect hair. They have the perfect job. You know, and the guys are all buffed up, you know, and they look great and they look handsome. And so, you know, and, and, the, and the love story always ends perfectly, right? Well, that's not the real world, is it? But see, we look at these things and we compare ourselves and we say, wait a minute, I don't have the perfect hair. I don't have the perfect makeup. I don't have the perfect guy or girl. And so we say, well, there must be something wrong with me. So Genesis chapter 3 verse, uh, chapter 3 verse 7 says, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame because they were naked. And we go back to 2.25 and we see that they were naked and they did not feel shame. Suddenly their eyes were open and they felt shame. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And it says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among God among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man, where are you? Now, do you think God knew where they were? Yeah, God asks a lot of questions sometimes, doesn't he? Because he wants us to look inside of ourselves. Adam, where are you? I don't think he wanted to know exactly which tree he was behind or bush he was behind hiding. He wanted to know where he was at with him. Where are you at in my relationship with you? And he said, he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. He was ashamed. So not only did we just have an act of disobedience, we had the infusion of shame infused and embedded into mankind's dna and it's this is very important to understand this they felt they were lacking in the very presence they desired to become they wanted to be god they saw god they were lacking because they did not have what they felt they had what did they do they covered up do we ever cover up because of our shame yes we do we cover up as well we hide our shame the same way we hide, we hide it by, by buying things. We hide it by these coping mechanisms. We hide it by achievement. We hide it, you know, with, with uh, 
bragging or, or whatever it might be. We do things to cover up our shame because we do not want to present to people the authentic self that God has created. We always want to project something more and better than what we feel we are ourselves. And, you know, I can't think, I was just thinking about our counseling business, and I can't think of a single time that I've worked with a person over the years, and not that I work with so many that much anymore, but I can't think of a single person, as I thought back, that their base problem was not a root, the root problem was not a base uh, identity issue. Their root problem was the fact that they really did not feel they were adequate and so what did they do? They turn to these behaviors. They turn to, it creates emotions, which creates behaviors, which creates situations. And, and as we begin to, and that's why many times the programs do not work. You know, we'll give you a pill for your anxiety. Well, that's great until the pill runs off, right? Runs out, the effect of it. Or we'll put you in a group. Well, that's great as long as I'm in a group. You know, we straightjacket people. We put them in therapy. And then as soon as they're out of therapy, unless we get to the root cause and pour out, pull out that root, that thing is going to take life one more time. And when the right circumstances are around, that thing is going to take root. It's going to begin to blossom and bloom in our life. So how do we define shame first and foremost? This is from Dr. John Bradshaw. And uh, he's, this is from his book, Healing the Shame That Binds You. There's a lot of good work on shame. I discovered that in the last two weeks. I've never really done a lot of research on shame. But as I began to do research, I began to see there's a lot of work that has been done. So this is not new to the psychological world. But it says a person with, now listen carefully. And the notes are on our podcast if you want to get those. A person with internalized shame believes he or she is inherently flawed, inferior, and defective. Such a feeling is so painful that defending scripts for strategies are developed to cover it up. What do we say? We, we make our own fig leaves, right? We, 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 we devise our own ways of making ourselves presentable. It says these scripts are the roots of violence, criminality, war, and all forms of addiction. Shame become the source, can become the source of self-loathing, hatred of others, cruelty, violence, brutality, prejudice, and all forms of destructive addictions. As an internalized identity, toxic shame is one of the major sources of the demonic in human life. See, this psychologist even recognizes the demonic influence. Let me read that again. As an internalized identity, in other words, I, I have a shame-based identity. I'm not walking in my God identity. I have a shame-based identity. It is, he says, it is the major sources of the demonic activity in human life because it's an open door for the enemy. You know, Peter says, don't, you know, be careful. The devil's walking around looking for a way to come in. So we think, well, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to chew. I'm not going to cuss. I'm not going to run around. You know, I'm going to do all these things. But what about what we are in, internally? What about when we feel that we're defective, we're broken, we're no good, we're dirty? It's an open door for the enemy to come in, just like, and he's the one, that's, he's the one that actually implanted that door into the human race. So it's, and then he goes on to say, toxic shame becomes the core of neurosis, Character disorders, political violence, wars, and criminalities. It comes the closest to defining human bondage of all the things I know. This is Dr. John Bradshaw. So we feel shame. What do we do? Then we fear. Then we hide. Then we blame. That's the pattern that we saw in the garden. Adam and Eve, they felt shame. They hid from God. They were afraid. They hid from God. And what did they do? She did it. He did it. We start the blame game. And, and we see so many people with all of the symptoms that Dr. Bradshaw described. And as I said earlier, we try to treat them with external means when it's internally a problem. 
We've got to get to the root of the problem. And only Jesus can do that. He's the only one. We've seen people's lives turn just like that when they get to the, get to the realization that, that they don't have to have this shame-based identity. They don't have to be broken any longer. And, and to see believers who love God and you know they love God and they desire to follow him, but to, to see them continuously find themselves filled with self-hatred or violent behaviors or, or addictions or, or whatever, abandoning the very things that, that are important to them is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. We've had services, social services and others tell us, we know what you guys have in your tool bag and we know it takes it all. Use it. See, the world is beginning to recognize that man's methods are not enough. A lady once told me when I asked her why she started drinking in her 50s. It's kind of unusual somebody start drinking and become an alcoholic in their 50s. And she said, I was tired of feeling the pain. Well, what was the pain? She had been repeatedly molested by her father as a young girl. She had been married several times. And I said, well, tell me what you were saying to yourself because of this. And this is what she said. She said, I felt dirty broken and unworthy of every husband I had. Dirty, we took her through counseling and she got set free because she began to realize who she really was. See, that that trauma didn't give her an identity. God gave her her identity. And we have to walk in our God-given identity. We cannot let traumas and events define us and label us. We had another lady recently that I've been working with who at a very early age was molested by a relative. And she thought, well, I'm going to keep this quiet. I don't want to cause trouble in the family. So years go by, 40 years as a matter of fact. And all of a sudden she hears that he's doing the same thing to some of his stepchildren. And what does she do? The shame and the guilt come in because she says, what if I had reported this? So she became overwhelmed with shame and guilt, which led to depression and self-loathing. She had to quit her job for a period of time. But then we, we, we again walked her back through who she really is in Christ. And we can't let this, I, this uh, incident uh, label her or give her the false identity. This is a quote from a Harvard review. It says that shame is the heart of, of all psychopathology. Now, psychopathology is a scientific study of mental disorders. Shame is at the heart of all, of all psychopathology, and it's behind guilt, anger, and it's disguised as despair and depression. So what happens when we, we do experience these shames and uh, this, this type of thing? And Dr. Linda uh, Hartling, I love this. I use this a lot in some of the classes that we have. She says there's three strategies that we use to disconnect from people. And as I was looking at this this week, I never really thought about the Garden of Eden. But as I was looking at that this week, I thought, wow, Eve did all three of these. Adam and Eve did all three of these. The first is that we move away. In other words, we withdraw. We, we hide ourselves. We isolate ourselves. We tend to avoid areas of life where, that we desire to be involved because we're afraid, because that tape begins to play in our head that we're not enough. We're not good enough. There's something wrong with me. It's, it's, we, play, we make things uh, ourselves invisible. And when someone uses a moving away shame shield, and that's what they call it, they tend to avoid conflict and disappear whenever they feel uncomfortable. You ever seen that happen? Things get uncomfortable, you just disappear. They isolate or make themselves scarce when there's an uncomfortable situation. I've seen this time and time again, and this is why a lot of people relapse with drug and alcohol and pornography. Because see, that's their coping mechanism. If I can just, I, I'm tired of feeling the pain, but I've, I've been good now. So something uncomfortable happens, and what do they do? They run back to that thing because I've got to, I've got to isolate myself. I've got to run to that thing that takes care of the pain. 
We see it time and time and time again. So moving away, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid from God. They hid from God. We moved away. We hide. The second way that we disconnect is we move towards. Is, that is the shield of making everything perfect and pleasing others. When there is conflict, people use this technique and, and to work, and will work diligently to make everybody happy. See, this is the type of person that is a people pleaser. We attempt to fix our problem ourselves. What did Adam and Eve do? They put a sewed together leaves, right? I'm going to fix my problem. We sew le- uh, fig leaves around our nakedness so we'll be acceptable, so you're going to like me. And we become perfectionist. We become perfectionist. And we want to make sure that everybody's happy so we don't lose relationship. And often our biggest competitor is ourself. Often our biggest competitor is myself. I said myself. That was a Freudian slip. That's the truth. I remember when I was in college, I, I had a certain level that I could not drop below on my grades or I, was, I tormented myself. I was unworthy. I remember when I went to Gordon-Conwell and I made a B-plus one time in, in Greek and I told Terry, I said, I'm quitting. I don't make B-pluses. See, it was, and he said, you've got to get hold of yourself. You've got to get hold of yourself. And so what happened, I, I did. God got hold of me. You know, it wasn't about me. It was, I mean, it wasn't about performance so much. It was about me failing to me. And my performance was how my identity was defined. So my identity is wrapped up in my ability to perform and to be perfect in everything. So we move toward people. And then the thirdly, we move against people. And we see this as, as God asked Eve and Adam, what you, what you doing? You know, what are you thinking here? And she said, what, man, Adam said, the woman you gave me did it. Eve said, the serpent deceived me, right? Blame. We want to blame someone. And so basically, it's, it's, we're deflecting and we're fighting back. We're deflecting our shame by projecting it on others. They, this person uses anger and aggression to protect themselves. They will shame the other person in order to take the pressure off their own feelings of being uncomfortable. A lot of sarcasm, a lot of criticism. Yeah, we, we start the blame game. We become antagonistic. And, and what do we do? We create division and we create walls. And it's all about that shame. It's all about the shame that we have not dealt with. Well, how can we know? Let me give you some characteristics of a shame-based identity. In Gershon Kaufman, in his book, Shame, this is what he says. He says, shame is the effect which is the source of many complex and disturbing interstates. Listen to these interstates. Depression. I can't tell you how many people come to us for depression. Depression is not healthy, right? Depression is, you know, depression needs to be treated. Depression can lead to suicide. I just got a report this week of someone's family member who committed suicide after the death of their spouse a year ago. Can't live life without this person. See, their identity was wrapped up in that person. Our identity should be wrapped up in God and what he's called us to become, right? So depression, alienation, self-doubt, isolating, loneliness, paranoid and schizophrenic phenomenon, compulsive disorders, the splitting of the self, perfectionism, a deep sense of inferiority, inadequacy or failure, the so-called borderline condition and disorders of narcissism. Narcissism. Why are people narcissistic? Because they have this feeling of shame and so they're overcompensating. And they want you to know, usually people that are narcissistic have very low inner self-esteem. They're just putting on this front. So that's, that's one of the characteristics, or several of the characteristics. Listen to this. 
People with shame-based identities tend to over-personalize everything. They feel they're to blame for all the bad that happens in the world. You ever been like that where you've, something would happen, you think, well, it must be my fault. I must have done something wrong. And so everything is, is personalized. Somebody doesn't look at you the way you think they should, so you personalize it. What's wrong with me? There must be, they don't like me. What's wrong with me? So we see that. Thirdly, it causes us to look to others for approval, suppress emotion, high levels of anxiety. Probably uh, the most frequent calls we get are for depression and anxiety, wouldn't you think? Depression and anxiety. You know, when I first got born again, the Lord, the first scripture that I recall the Lord giving to me was Philippians uh, 4, 6. And it said, be anxious for nothing. And I went home and put that on my refrigerator because I'm telling you, I was anxious about everything. Everything. I got up in the morning, I was anxious. I had a bed at night, I was anxious. He said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So when I would begin to feel anxious, which I did many, many times after that, I would remember that. God, I'm anxious for nothing. I'm giving this situation to you. And, you know, a calm and a peace would come over my mind and my heart. And suddenly the anxiety wasn't there like it could have been, the potential. So anxiety, because we're never enough, it it prevents us from making important decisions that need to be made. If God has called you to do something for him, if you feel that you're not enough, that you're inadequate, or whatever that might be, are you going to be likely to step out and make that decision? Take that risk even sometime? Take that risk for what God is calling you to do? No. So we need to get rid of this shame-based identity. Fourth, it causes us to go outside ourselves to find an answer. Addictions. Addictions. Compulsive behaviors. Perfectionisms. Workaholics. Sport and bodybuilding compulsions. Why are we doing all these things? You know, I, I, I never was prone to alcohol or drugs that much, but I sure was prone to working. And I became a workaholic, and I still have to deal with that. I feel like my performance was based on my ability to work and perform. And it was very important how I did that. And, I, and I'm going to be honest with you, I still have to bring that before the Lord at, at times and say, God, you know, I don't want to get back into this thing of being a workaholic. And so, so, but we see it with just, again, the perfectionism and, and compulsive behaviors, OCD things. Everything's got to be clean. Everything's got to be spotless. And we believe in cleanliness around here. But we also believe that, you know, we, we need to take a balance in things, don't we? Most of that's driven by what? Fear. Fear. I've got to overperform because I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. It causes people who have addiction cycles to be more prone to relapse. We talked about that a moment ago. They're more prone to relapse, to live in binges or cycles of addiction. They'll have a season of victory, and then something uncomfortable will happen. Something uncomfortable. Maybe the job will shut down, and what do they do? They run to the bottle. They run to the pills. They run to the pornography. I had, I've had guys with pornography addictions, and they say when, when their marriage, when they, they and their wife would get into conflict, what would they do? They'd slip out in the night and get on their computer and watch pornography. Maybe they'd been, been uh, free of that for months. Because that they remembered that peace that that gave to them. It was, it was that false, that false sense of, of that, that was their God, basically. That was their God. So where does shame come from? Thought you would never ask, huh? Where does shame come from? Well, you're probably not going to like what you hear. But let me tell you, remember, we don't get into the blame game, right? We don't get into the blame game. 
But shame is fostered in significant relationships where people are not valued or made to feel valuable, important, or wanted. Mostly in families of origin. Mostly in families of origin. In the early years, in those first seven to ten years, is the most powerful times that children's inner person is being shaped and formed. And many times they carry all of that with them through the rest of their life unless there's intervention. It says, John Bradshaw again says, it's, a multi-gener- it's multi-generational in families and it's even passed down. What does Exodus 20 verse 5 say? The Lord told Moses, he says, the influences or the iniquities of, of the fathers and the mothers are going to be visited to the third and the fourth generation, right? This is what he's saying. It's that pattern. That, that word iniquities means twisting or, or bending. It's influences. So the influence that's found in the family of origin will be visited. That word literally means to seek out. Those influences are going to seek out to the third and the fourth generation. And I've, I've said this before, but I've read recently that in, even in our genetic coding, they're saying now that trauma, early childhood trauma, can remain in a body, a physical body, through the generations for three to four generations. That's exactly what the Word of God says, right? So science confirms what God's been saying all along. So it is, it is generational. Listen to this. The job of parents is to model. But let me tell you one thing. Parents usually do the best they know how to do. They themselves might be operating out of a shame-based identity. What do they do? They pass it on to their children. Not wanting to, you would never see a parent that gets up and says, I think I'm going to destroy the life of my child today. Most parents don't do that, right? But what they do is they work out of what they know. So we don't get into the blame game, okay? So as modeling includes how to be a man or woman, how to relate intimately to another person, how to acknowledge and express emotions, how to fight fairly, how to have physical, emotional, intellectual boundaries, how to communicate, how to cope and survive life's unending problems, how to be self-disciplined, how to love oneself and love one another. Shame-based parents cannot do any of these. They cannot. They simply do not know how. They simply do not know how. And you think about families are where we first learn who we are. It's where we first learn who we are. It's our very first social system that we're involved with. And today we have so many broken families, so many fatherless homes. Parents have little time for the children because they're working all of the time. We have sibling rivalry going on in the homes, the black sheep syndrome, uh, comparisons one with another. And many parents are struggling with their own issues of brokenness and addiction and anger. And this is what they model and, and leave to their children. I'm telling you, we're, we're, we're right now, we're, we're looking at ways that we can offer to our community some of the very things that we offer in our counseling business to the community at no charge. We're going to be doing that. Because there's parents that will never come into our counseling business that still don't know how to be parents. There's marriages that stay in conflict all of the time, but they're never going to go through a court system. And most likely, they're never going to pick up the phone and call. There's parents that are struggling with addictions every single day. You say, well, drugs and alcohol, yes. How about food? How about technology? How about work? Many times people just stay away from home because they have an identity on their job. Right? So we we struggle, and so we're looking at these things that we can do to provide for the community. Dr. John Bradshaw again says, where does, you know, some of the reasons are why we struggle with shame. These are some other reasons. Abandonment. 
abandonment, which results in neglect and abuse. Now, you can be abandoned as a child or you can be abandoned as an adult in a, in a marriage relationship. Or on a job, you can feel like you, you, you were fired for no reason. You, they abandon you in a sense. And it can even be a perceived abandonment. I remember I, I ministered for a long time with, a, well, counseled a long time with a young man. He came to us through the court system. And it, uh, he was uh, adopted out when he was a very, very, I think right out of the womb, basically, because his mother was a drug addict. And he was adopted by a very wonderful, loving, successful family. But at 12, he learned he was adopted. And he said to me, this is where my problem started at the age of 12. He said, because in his mind, even though he recognized that he had a healthy, beautiful, loving family, mom and dad that loved him very much, he kept saying, why did my mother give me away? Why couldn't she have worked it out? Why was drugs more important? This young man's in prison today. He's been in prison numerous times. Drugs, alcohol, sexual violence, simply because he could never get over the shame and the stigma of, in his mind, being abandoned. Sexual abuse is another reason that we have shame and you know it takes less time after sexual abuse for shame to set in or to induce shame than any other type of abuse physical abuse what does physical abuse do it, it devalues a person pushing and shoving and hitting there's a lot of that that goes on we've had people tell us i thought it was normal to hit and slap and roll in the floor fighting we've had people tell us that that's the way they grew up see that's not normal right it might be normal for them, but that's not godly. That's not God's plan. How about emotional abuse? Emotions are the foundations of our power as a person, and shame releases fear and guilt when we have emotion. It attacks our value and our worth. So I read recently that someone said our emotions are the colors of our soul. Think about your emotions. What colors would you ascribe to your emotions? Are they bright and happy? Or are they black and dark and gray and gloomy? Emotions are also messengers of the soul. And too many times we shoot the messenger. We have emotions. The emotions tell us really how we're doing with ourselves, but it also tells us how we're doing with God. Am I trusting God? If I'm constantly angry, there's a reason. If I'm jealous, there's a reason. You know, if I'm depressed, there's a reason. So what that is a messenger and it's saying, red flag, red flag, we got a problem here. We need to work on something. But what do we do? We medicate our, our emotions. Let's take a pill. Let's knock that emotion back down. We shoot the messenger. And we live all of our lives struggling with depression and anger and anxiety and jealousy and strife and discord and all these other things uh, that, that it brings. Another one is religious abuse. It's a sense of never being able to please God. And, some, and I'm afraid sometimes that we're raised with an unbalanced message. You know, God is a, a just God, but he's also a God of grace. And he's a God of balance. And I remember after I got born again, I was always walking around thinking, this is what I'd say all the time, God forgive me, God forgive me, God forgive me. Because I thought surely I'd done something wrong. I was always guilty. And, you know, I, I know now a lot of the reasons why that was going on, because I had a hard time pleasing some people in my early years. But, you know, but I was always saying, God, forgive me. And I remember I was standing in my, in my mother's home, and I was in, looking in the closet. God, forgive me. I did this all the time. And he said to me so loud, for what? For what? And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I thought, well, I haven't really done anything. And that kind of turned the corner for me, because I'm thinking, there must be something else going on here. 
So the enemy wants to torment you, and that's what shame does. Shame torments you into feeling like you're always doing something. You're never measuring up. You're never good enough. You're always making the mistake. So we need, we, need to under, we need to have a balance of what the Word of God has to say. We also get distorted ideas of who God is. And many times we'll transfer our image of God uh, by, from our image of our parents. So, you know, if you have an abusive father or mother, then you might feel God is abusive. If you have an angry father or mother, then you always see God is angry. And I remember uh, William Paul uh, Young, who wrote The Shack, he said in, in his uh, documentary on the heart of man, he said that it took him 50 years to wipe the face of his father off of the face of God. 50 years. Now, his, his, he came from what he said was a good family, but the way that they disciplined was abuse. The verbal was abuse. But back in that time, they thought, well, it's, you know, I, I, I had a good life. But, but he sees the effect that it had on him. And so, so that's the problem. So what is the solution to all of this? You know, back in Genesis 3.15, the Lord began and he promised a redeemer. He promised a redeemer. And we know that we can overcome shame because of the cross, because of what Jesus has done. We do not have to live another minute wrapped up in this identity of shame. First John 3, 8, I love this scripture. It says, this is the reason. One of the translations says the manifest or the manifold purpose of God or the manifest purpose of God to bring Jesus to the earth was to destroy, to loosen, to undo the works of the devil. So Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Well, what were the works of the devil? It's not just a matter of saying, God, forgive me. Okay, I'm clean now. No, what's the work that went on inside of us? What's the shame-based identity that God didn't give to us? The devil brought that. So Jesus came to destroy that. And, and, and he did destroy that. But we have to walk and we have to appropriate that to our life. That's why we have the Luke 4.18 ministry, by the way. This is what we deal with. And Luke 4.18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What's good news to a shame-based person? You don't have to be ashamed anymore. Remember what the psychologist said. It's, it's, the, it's the thing that wraps us in bondage. It's how demonic process starts in our life because we're always tainted with shame. We're painting ourselves with shame. And it says, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering a sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, let me tell you what that word oppressed means. It's the word thravo, thravo in the Greek. And it means broken, oppressed, weak, or crushed in spirit. Crushed. Jesus says he came to set free those who are crushed in spirit. See, they're wrapped in this thing of, of I'm broken, I'm no good, I'm not worthy, I'm not enough. They're wrapped in this. He said, I came to untie those bonds. I came to, to break the lock on those chains that you've been carrying all your life. Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed all powers and all principalities and put them to open shame. See, they're the ones that should be ashamed, not us. We don't walk in shame. Last week we said in Romans 4.25, he died for our sins, but what? He was raised for our justification, just as if we had never, never sinned. So the resurrection power of Christ enables us to rise above shame and guilt and depression and anxiety. And, you know, so, and we, we tell people all the time, make sure first you're physically okay. Because sometimes, if, and, you know, imbalances can cause some things, but I'm telling you 99% of the time, that's not the problem. The problem is usually we have self-perpetuated this shame-based identity and we walk around cloaked in shame 
And we're doing all these things to cope with it just so we can make it through another day. And what do we do? We live lives of frustration because we have dreams and goals and desires inside of us that we never accomplish because we never think we're good enough. We never think. I remember one time I was whining to the Lord about something along that line, and he literally yelled at me. He says, I am for you. I am for you. And let me tell you, God is for you. God is for you. Well, okay, being the teacher that I am, I have four steps to freedom. <laughs> okay. Number one, you got to be born again. It all starts with relationship with God. I'm, this is not some psychological mumbo-jumbo. You've got to be born again. you got to be born again. We, if you don't, don't want to get born again, we can put you in our groups. We can put you in therapy. We can send you to psychiatrists and doctors to get prescriptions. But you're going to be living with it all your life. You've got to be born again because it's in Him that we have the power to overcome. It's in Him that we are victorious. See, Jesus is the one that turns off the tape. He's the one that turns off the tape. But we've got to make, not just make a trip to the altar. There's, it's, it's, it's so sad. So many people have walked to the altar and they've left the altar and they're no different because all they did was repeat after me. They had an emotional moment. See, God's wanting a transforming moment. He wants to transform our, he wants us to meet the king of creation, the king of glory. He wants us to meet him. And he wants us to have that transforming power in our life. And as making him Lord means that we, we want to be obedient. Do we do everything right the first day? Of course not. You know, your thousandth day, you may not be doing everything right. But you know what? God says, if you do mess up, all you have to do is repent. And he says, I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to cleanse you. We come with a repentant heart. So see, we repent to get born again. We also have to repent to keep that, that relationship with God. And so the best thing to do is to fill our hearts with the word and pray. If, you're, if, you're, if Jesus is Lord, you're going to love this book because this is who he is. If Jesus is Lord, you can't wait to talk to him. I talk to the Lord all the time, all the time. And I know he listens. And aren't you glad he listens? Aren't you glad that he hears us? Walking through my kitchen, I can be praying to God. Praying for some, maybe some of you out there. Praying for family. Praying for situations. Praying for the churches. It's discouraging to see pastors that are discouraged. Of all people in the world, pastors should not be discouraged. How does a discouraged pastor lead a flock and not make them discouraged, right? Sooner or later, it's going to shine through. So we want to make Jesus Lord of our life. We want to repent. So we turn the tape off. And then we, we turn off, number two, we turn off the inner critic. And that's our own voice. We have to turn off the inner critic. See, what happens is Jesus turns the tape off, but we turn it back on. We keep hitting replay, replay. We get into a situation, replay. Oh, we got this job opportunity. I'm not good enough, replay. And we start replaying all the conversations, all the toxic things that have been said to us. And we start remembering. So we have to turn off that inner critic, that our own voice. And we have to speak God's word about you, what God says about you. This is 2A. We speak what God says about you. So you don't know what he says unless you read the word, right? You don't know what he says. Let me tell you what some of the things he says. Psalm 139, verse 13. This is David talking to God. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. See, God doesn't make junk. God's not a God of shame. There was no shame gene in, in creation, let me tell you. When he was knitting us together, he didn't knit a shame gene in there. 
And then it says, Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Listen to this. This is powerful. Verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Let me tell you, God has a plan for your life. You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Then don't believe it. I'm telling you, I believe it. And let me tell you, God has an incredible plan for you, for every one of us. And you say, well, I've waited too late. I don't care if you're 85. God has a plan for you. Every time I moan and groan about, well, Lord, I'm too old to do this, and I, I started doing that about 30 years ago, by the way. What if I'd have started earlier? And this, he keeps telling me this. Jesus said, I only, have three, I only had three years. I only had three years. Moses was 80. How old was Abraham? Old. So I don't care whether you're 20 or whether you're 85. If you're breathing, if you've got one more day, God's got a plan for that day, and you've got to walk in it. He knew every day that my life that he had in my book, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. You say that's Old Testament. Ephesians 2:10 says, "For we, I am God's masterpiece." That means work of art. He he has created me anew in Christ Jesus so I can do the things he planned for me long ago. That's the promise of God. How about 1 Corinthians 2:16 when you want to think, "Well, I'm not I'm not smart enough." He, 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, I have the mind of Christ. Would you ever tell Jesus, I'm, you're not smart enough, you don't know? He created all that there is. He spoke the world into being. God knows. So whatever you need to know, I'm telling you, God has the answer for it. Jeremiah 33.3, you call a man will show you great and mighty things you have no knowledge of. I have story after story of how God did that for me. How about anxiety? I've already given you Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything. You've got to say to yourself what God's Word says. You've got to think only on the good things. You've got to replace negative. It's not just enough to cast down the negative. You've got to replace it with the good. Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In Proverbs 4, it tells us, above all we guard, we're to guard our heart, because out of it flow the very de deliverances of our lives. See, that's the promise of God's Word. We've got to know the Word of God. So, number one is we've got to be born again. Number two is we have to turn off the inner critic, that inner voice. Now, this is going to be a tough one, maybe. Number three, you have to eliminate toxic relationships. You have to eliminate toxic relationships. It doesn't mean you don't love them. You love them and leave them. It doesn't mean you don't love them. But are you going to stand before God and say, well, I didn't want to break, I didn't want to hurt so-and-so's feelings, so I just hung out with them while they poisoned me all the days of my life. That's why I didn't do anything you asked me to do, God. I hope we don't. I don't think we're going to have those conversations. Well, let me tell you, a lot of people go to their graves with their dreams still in them. Most people die with their music still in them because they listen to either an inner voice or they listen to a critic tell them why they could not do it. And, you know, most of the time when people are criticizing us, they just don't want you to do what they didn't have the inward fortitude to do themselves. So we eliminate toxic relationships. You know, I'll tell you how I dealt with one one time. I just had to say, listen, I love you as a person, but I can't deal with your negativity and if you don't stop being negative, you're really not going to be welcome back in my home again. 
And you know, that, that dealt with the problem. That, that person was never again critical or negative around me about the issue. I love them. I gave them the option. They made the choice. It's called healthy boundaries. See, when you establish healthy boundaries, what you're doing is you're allowing that person to see what belongs to you and not to them, and you're letting them make the choice if they're going to violate that or not. But every boundary has to have a consequence. So if we set boundaries and we don't, we don't then have the consequence in place, then it really wasn't a boundary at all. So number three, we eliminate toxic relationships. Number four, this is from Barbara, straight from Barbara Wintrouble. You've got to find people who's going to celebrate you and not tolerate you. You find people who will celebrate you, people who will love you, who will speak into your life, who will help you become that person that they'll see the gifts inside of you. See, this should be what all pastors are about, is pulling out the gifts that God has given to people and letting them operate and walk in their calling. We shouldn't be wrapped up in jealousy and afraid they're going to outdo somebody. That's insecurity. That's shame-based identity. A man's gifts will make room for him. And we have to, we have to, I want to be a part of that, don't you? I want to be a part of enabling people to walk in their destiny. We should. I can't think of the number of people that have allowed just in our lives the favor God has given, the, the, the relationships that God has placed in our life that have enabled us to take one step further or one step closer to our destiny. We want to be those people. We want to be those people. So this is the time of the service. I say, let's stand, please, and I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> so you can stand or you can see it. But I want to pray. First and foremost, I, I, did, I just want you to stop and think, do I have any of those characteristics? I'd say 99.9% .9 of people have them some, somewhere, sometime. Maybe it's not as bad as it used to be. Maybe it's worse than it ever was. And here again, we never go back and blame. Don't get into that. You're going to destroy your healing if you do that. We don't blame. But the first and the foremost thing is we've got to be born again. So God, I pray for every person listening, every person that's going to listen. I pray, Father God, that you'll touch their heart, that you'll convict them, that you'll show them the way. And God, that you'll lead them into that place where they not just want to be okay with you, Lord, but they want to make you Lord of their lives. God, they want to realize that it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. You're not bad. You're not, a, you're not waiting to slip the rug out from under someone. You're not waiting to hit them over the head with a, a hammer, Father God. You're, you're not the angry, aggressive Father. You're a loving, kind Father. You tenderly love us. God, I pray you'll show your love to people that are lost. Let them see your love. Lord, we just come against any image in the mind of people that's been put there by abusive relationships in the past, parents or, or spouses or siblings or whoever it might be, family members, God. We just break that image in Jesus' name. God, I pray that who you are will become real to them, that you are a God that loves. You loved us so much that you sent your only son. God, and I thank you, Lord, that we desire to follow after you. We desire to love you with all of our heart. We desire to seek you with all of our heart. So, God, we pray for every person out there that even this time right now, they can simply say the same prayer I prayed, God, I need you. That's all I knew to pray, God. I, God, I need you. And, Lord, you came. Thank you, God, for that. God, I pray that in the hearts of every person listening. Father, I pray that you will help hearts to heal. I pray, Father, that people will respond to you and to your word, Lord. You said that you came to heal those that have been crushed by life, to free them, Father God. And so we break off now in the name of Jesus. 
every binding chain, every binding rope, every lie of the enemy. We break the power of that in the mighty name of Jesus. We declare that people are set free. They will no longer be slaves to a, a shame mentality in the mighty name of Jesus. We break that off. We declare freedom. And Lord, we thank you for it. God, I pray now just to fill your people with power, the power of the Holy Spirit. You said it's so important that we that we have Holy Ghost power, Lord. That power that instructs us, that power that teaches us, that power that walks with us, that speaks to us every day, Lord. The power that helps us identify. God, that power that reveals those broken areas in our lives. God, you reveal only to heal. You only reveal to heal. And God, let us come boldly before your throne. God, we need healing. We need wholesomeness. We need health. We need, we need everything you have for us, Holy God. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, power would just fill the hearts and the minds of your people. And Lord, they would pursue you. And they would pursue, Father, healing and health. And not just be satisfied with, well, it's been okay. It's worked for me so far. God, help people to see the masterpiece that you made them to be. Help them to see the days in, that you've got recorded in your book, your plan, your, your future for people, Father God. We break the lie of the enemy. We break the deception of the enemy that there's more than what you have to offer. We break that lie in Jesus' mighty name. And Father, I thank you, Lord, that you'll send people that will celebrate your people. Give people the strength, Lord, to say no to the toxic people. Give them the strength, Lord, to love them, but yet to leave that relationship that's holding them back. And God, I pray that you will send people to love, to celebrate, to encourage. Send fathers and mothers to help develop your children, Father, spiritual fathers and mothers. God, let us get rid of pride that thinks we can do it all ourselves. God, none of us can do it by ourselves. We all need someone. God, we're so thankful. Thank you, Father, for those perfect labors. Send them to our children and our grandchildren, Father God, who are struggling. God, the world has offered them a lie. It's given them a false identity. It's given them a false sense of what, who they need to be. God, we break that lie off of our children and our grandchildren. God, they need to be who you made them to be. Their authentic self is who you made them to be, God. And Lord, we so appreciate your plan for our lives. God, I pray blessing. I pray prosperity. I pray healing and health over every person listening. In the mighty name of Jesus, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. And we're going to continue this topic on Wednesday night. So if you could be with us, Wednesday night live, 630, right? 630, yes. Be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen.